Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Welcome. Thank you. So you are electrifying as Othello. How did this role come about for you? Uh, it sort of, uh, it sort of <laughs> fell in my lap, which is wonderful. I, I, was, I was filming a film of uh, King Lear in London last year, and because I think there's always a slightly, um, the universe sometimes gets involved with some of these things. You can yeah. strive for stuff and never get it, and then you're having a cup of tea in the morning, and the biggest job of your life falls on your lap. So I was filming uh, Leah in London, and uh, on the first day of filming, I had this wonderful conversation with Anthony Hopkins, who was playing Leah. And he, after the conversation, he looked at me and went, you must be ready for your Leah, for your Othello. <laughs> you must be ready for your Othello. And I looked at him like, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, what do you say when a man like that says that? And then I, I got back to New York about... Three weeks later or something, I finished filming and I came back and I, I suddenly got a, um, I was having a conversation with my, eight, my manager about how, okay, I'm about to start the low road. Yeah. I've just done Hedda Gabler in London and stuff. I've really enjoyed filming, you know. After I finish the low road, let's focus on filming and stuff just for a while. You know what I mean? Like, because this, the play, we'll probably talk about this later, rehearsals and stuff take so much out of you, you know. And, um, and I said to my manager, look, barring, I don't know, Barring Othello in the park. <laughs> I really don't, I really don't want to do another play. And <laughs> a week later, the call came, the call came through. They kind of want to meet you for Othello in yeah. the park. So, and so, so then I sat down with the wonderful Ruben Santiago Hudson and, and we spoke about the play for two hours and just discussing his ideas, my ideas. And um, I got the call. Yeah, because you were both on the same page with your director, right? Talk about those early conversations. Yeah, they, they, um, it's a very, it's such a hard play because yeah. it, it over, it, historically it's gone through so many different shifts. There was a time, you know, 150 or plus years ago, you know, everyone wanted to play Othello. White actors, of course, because black actors weren't doing, weren't playing Othello. I mean, Ruben was telling me all about this. And it's yeah. funny because I've, I've written a screenplay about the great Ira Aldridge. And uh, right up to Ira playing it, it was a role that, you know, he took over from the great Edmund Keane. So it was a role they wanted. And then suddenly Ira plays it and then black guys start playing it. And then Robeson plays it. And suddenly the white actors that wanted to play Othello now want to play Iago. And so for a long time, this play became a vehicle for usually very uh, well-known, famous white actors to showcase themselves as Iago, with the Othello often becoming a sort of afterthought. And, um, and that carried on for a while. And um, then more recently, as things have changed, it's, 
that shift has sort of evened out a bit. So one of the big things I had, I spoke to Ruben about, I said, Ruben, look, we have to bring this back to the love story, right? There's a reason why he called it Othello. There's a reason why that was the role that was coveted for so long. And he agreed because he's a romantic. And he, he said to me, you know, don't worry, I'll take care of you. Because that's why he hasn't played it. He's never been able to find a director he felt would take care of him in the role. Because it's so hard, because Iago's a phenomenal role. It's the role that gets to talk to the audience the whole, for the whole first half. He, he dictates what's happening. He's moving the chest. We're, we're seduced by characters like that. So I, I said the only way I could sustain this character and the only way that it could work and the only way that Act 5, Scene 2 can work after I kill her and stuff, spoiler alert, is... Um, <laughs> The only way that can happen is that if we've invested enough at the beginning, literally two scenes, of the love these two have together, that the alternate name for this play could be the greatest love story that never was. So once I knew he was there, and the other thing I insisted on is that Othello really goes mad. It's not just anger, it's not just jealousy, it's like mad. And he doesn't have to stay there. And what makes this role the hardest role I've ever played is that he's constantly doing that back and forth. Mad, sane, mad, sane, angry in love, angry in love all the time. But he has to go mad. And if we agree with those three things, that you'll take care of me, that we invest in the love story and bring it back to the love story and you allow me to go wherever that takes us mad, then, and he agreed with all those things. So it was great. You know, because I love seeing the revelations that your Othello goes through between Acts 1 and Act 2, and I've mm-hmm. never seen that in any other production. Like you said, all, how many of you have seen Othello already? How many of you want to go see Othello? Yes. <laughs> a lot of people are telling me they're trying for the, lotto, the oh, lottery yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah. The lotto. I'm it is sorry, the lotto I mean, of theater, yeah, isn't it? The lottery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I just love how... What's that? No, I wish I did. I wish I did, mate. <laughs> You know, you're all on an even keel now. Like you said, all the characters. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. Not, you know, Yago doesn't stand out anymore. Yeah. You, you all stand out. Yeah, yeah. Which I love. Including that. the women. Yeah, the which women is are very wonderful. crucial in this, especially yeah. in our time right now. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. It's. I think uh, it always boggles my mind how people is a shortcut. You know, we're obsessed with shortcuts yeah. in general and. In the industry, sadly, people often look for shortcuts, and the shortcut would be to get a couple of megastars and then say, okay, people are going to come see them, we're going to fill the seats, it's fine. Or you get a director and a production where you just go, actually, no, the most important thing is the whole play, and for the whole play to work, we've got to get the right actors, and for the right actors to work, we've got to make sure that we invest in all of them. And then people come and see a story. They don't come to see a, a, right a star ahead. turn. Yep. You know, so... You know, you had played Othello before. Were you like 20? I was in college. It was the last show I did at Yale. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember it. I think my... my, my <laughs> no, I, I seriously, I don't remember much about it. And I, I feel sad. I know it, was, it did very well because I remember, I, I remember there were lines to come in and see. And I think we might have extended. But I genuinely don't remember anything I did, which is probably good because... It must have been shocking what I did at 20. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, what the hell do I know at 20? But I, I, I suddenly, I had the confidence, but yeah. probably not the skill set. So it's funny when you, when you talk to like musical theater actors or other actors, sometimes parts stay in your muscle memory, but there are a lot of actors who will do something again and say, I totally forget the first version of this I mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that I would think you would hold something but some roles are yeah. still there I, I think it's it depends on how you meet them where you meet them how you sing it i mean yeah. clearly an indication that i can't remember much is i probably didn't really mine yeah. into it i think you know at that age and stuff i 
it was more presentational, you know. But when I think of the roles that I've really mined into, you know, Hamlet will stay with me forever, you know, whole speeches of it. Don't ask me, don't test me on it, but I think, I think whole speeches of it will stay with me. Henry, the big chunks of Henry VI, yeah. which you mentioned, which I did, closed 10 years ago, will stay with me. But it just depends on, I think it's an indication of how much you've mined into yeah. it, you know. And you're at the right age to do these now. Yeah, absolutely, you know? absolutely. I think, I mean, look, Othello is one of those roles where, you know, I could play him in 20 years and it'd probably still be okay. I don't think I want to. Yeah. I, I genuinely think, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's a great, one of those great roles you can do time. I have no interest in doing it again. I think, I, I mean, I say that now. <laughs> Talk to me in like 10, 15 years. I might want to revisit it. But the way I feel is I feel we've got a great production. And yeah. I think I've mined what I want in Othello. And um, I, don't, I don't have a burning. The only role I've ever had a burning role to play again is Hamlet, only because it's the most complete role ever written. And that I don't care how well you do it, there's always another version of it you could have done because it's so complete. That's the only role I, I feel I ever need to come back to. Because you had just recently worked with Jude Law. Yeah. Right? You had done a, um, a film version of Obsession, right? Well, it was a play version yeah. that was filmed of and Obsession. And your director was? Eva Van Hove again. I just yeah. want to say that name. Um, so I'm sure you and Jude had conversations because Jude Law mm. was here in New York as Hamlet. We all fell in love with him as mm. Hamlet here. Mm. What kind of conversations do you have about Hamlet? Well, it's is funny it because we, it is, it is. We have this, this, uh, you know, as actors, we're supposed to be generous, right? And um, <laughs> we're supposed to want to go and yeah. see other actors play roles, sometimes roles we've played, sometimes roles we want to play and, you know, support them and all that. And I agree with that. Yeah. But there was something about Hamlet. And I was, you know, Jude and I, had, we'd, known, we'd been rehearsing for several weeks and talking and stuff, and, you know, I knew he'd played it. He, we'd ask each other odd questions. Then finally one afternoon, I was like, because there was a Hamlet happening in London with um, Andrew Scott. And I finally went, um, are you going to go see it? And Jude was like, I don't know, are you going to go see it? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, are you going to go see it? And he said, I, I don't think I am. And I went, you know, I, I know I'm not, you know. <laughs> and then we had the conversation where there's something about that role yeah. that is so, uh, it, it's like going to see someone else sleep with my wife. It's like, it's like I can't, yeah. it's so intimate and it takes so much out of you. And you're so proud playing it. You're so, it's such a pinnacle that you're like, you've, you've arrived that the idea of, Someone And Jude, funnily enough, said that when he was doing his Hamlet, Ian McKellen, yeah. not Ian McKellen, uh, Alan Rickman, yeah. sent him a note saying, I would love to come see you, but I just can't, yeah. you know, because he played yeah. it, you know. And so there's something about that role. There is, it's, it's the most brilliant um, human study I've ever come across. And I think there's a reason why it gets... Now, not every Hamlet is like this, but it was funny to meet someone else and then hear about someone else who felt the same way. You're all on the same page. Mm. You know, you're also working with some of the greatest actors in this production of mm. Othello. I mean, Corey Stahl, Heather Lind. Mm -hmm. What's it like sharing the stage with them? Oh, they're just uh, ultimate pros and very talented and very generous people. Yeah. And, and Alison Wright also and yeah. Babic. And I mean, I mean, there's... Uh, that's what I came back in my initial point. Bravo for picking a cast, not just a star, you know? Because when you have a cast, it's, it makes life easier because you come and you bounce off someone who's giving you stuff and they bounce off you. 
and you're generous because you're secure in the fact that you know what you're doing and they know what they're doing. And we have fun also. There's a lot of, there it's a crazy, it's a crazy bunch, you know, um, <laughs> Peter J. Fernandez and, yeah. and, and, you know, there's, there's some funny people in there. You need humor in that, especially the more tragic, you know, you really need humor. But ultimately it's just looking around and I think people have been commenting on it that I've come to see saying they, they can't remember ever seeing such a strong cast ensemble together. Everyone brings it to the table. What makes Ruben such a sought after and wonderful director to work with? His humanity, he has a real, you know, he, he's got a very, Ruben's, a, I love the man, he's very, uh, you know, he's got a lot of, he's macho, you know what I mean? He's, he's got that thing. <laughs> okay. But at the heart, there's a big heart at the heart of that. And I think that's one of the most attractive combinations in people is when they have this, but you know, there's real warmth. And, and I think his approach to Othello sort of um, proves what I feel about him, which is that he's a deep romantic who really wants to tell a love story, but he also understands the politics around it, you know? And I think you just have confidence in him. He's like having, he's like an NFL coach also. Some days he knows when he has to be the coach. Some days he knows when he has to be the teacher. Some days he knows when he has to be the artist. Some days he knows when he has to be the actor, literally get on that stage and say, do it like this. (laughs) He doesn't like to do that in all fairness, but it's great having an actor direct you also. Because I yeah. think sometimes directors have never experienced what it's like to be on that stage. I've never experienced. So it's great to have someone that understands. He gives you room. He really gives you a lot of room to try and try and try. And then it's like, all right, why not this, you know? So you have a, a real positive energy. You have a wonderful, healthy ego. I think all the great directors I've worked with have phenomenal egos. <laughs> You well, know. They're in charge. Yeah, in charge of a lot. Yeah. And a lot is hanging on their shoulders. I think you need it. The, the best directors I've worked with all have this crazy, but it's, a, it's an ego that's supported by the work. Yeah. It's not just one that's born of fear and um, insecurity. You know? What was the rehearsal process like? We have a lot of actors here and a lot of actors will be watching around the world. Mm. Like Rehearsing Othello with that group, where do you start? Do you come in with your lines already memorized? What do you do? Well, I do. I okay. do. I, I, I'm, which is, I think is why I got on so well with Evo because Evo yeah. uh, wants that. You know, with Evo Van Hove, if you ever work with him, he, uh, he, you actually arrive on the first of rehearsal and you actually start rehearsing in your costumes and if not on the stage, on a replica of the stage. So there's no sudden thing of tech or dress rehearsal surprises like that. You're just into it. And they're making adjustments and they're, you know what I mean? And he owned, that's why he, he loves short rehearsal processes. He, he doesn't want too much time because you're right in it. And anyway, so it worked really well with him because I've always believed in coming in, if you can. I mean, sometimes schedules don't allow it. I mean, if, if you're shooting a series where they're throwing lines at you every day and you have a kid at home or a couple of kids, you just don't have the time. I get that, but um, I don't have a kid, not that I know of. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, so I had time. So, and so what I, what I did was, yeah. uh, what I did was I, I, I go around the city. My process is really yeah. awkward because I think people sometimes want to hear something really fascinating about going to the zoo and watching gazelles or something. And I, <laughs> I, I genuinely just learn the lines. I, I drill those lines till, 
till I could see them doing the washing up or, or ordering my, you know, drill them. So that when I get into the room, I trust that I have natural instincts and I trust my impulses and I trust my brain. But, the line, but then ultimately I trust the director and the other actors in the room. And if, if I know my lines, I can be watching the other actors in the room. I can be watching their reactions as opposed to being stuck in the page. I can be seeing what they're doing and adjust because you're always going to have an idea of what you want to do. You know, and that's wonderful because directors love you coming in with ideas. But what you have to be is malleable also. If I've come in here thinking this and Corey decides that whatever, and I go, actually, that's, you've got to have the generosity to understand when something better than what you've thought of is being presented to you or something. I always say yes. Ruben was talking to me about that. He says one thing he loves about me is that I'll always try it. Even if in my head I'm screaming, no friggin' way. Yeah. <laughs> I can't really swear on this, can I? No, no swearing. Okay, because I have to remember that. I have to remember that. I, I change it. Really a... Friggin' is lovely. It's a nice word. Yeah. It's not a real swear word. It's... And um, um, he said he likes that. I always believe yeah. in first trying what's thrown at you before yeah. you start saying, oh, my character wouldn't do that and all that nonsense. That's just fear. I yeah. feel that's just fear. Try what's thrown at you because, you know, sometimes, you know, he's been thinking about it as a director for months before you even knew about it. He's also got the years on you, you know. That actor has his own instincts, which are different from yours. Maybe there's a wonderful alchemy between his instincts and yours. So my whole thing is learn the lines, be limber, and be, be brave, and come into the room and see what people throw at you. And then it starts forming. It starts, I mean, I, you know, this is a very physical product, um, interpretation of Othello. I never once thought, oh, I'm going to be physical with Othello. It just happened in the room when the emotions started coming, different things started happening, and, you know, and you're open to that because the language is in there. The language then starts leading you. Yeah. The language leads you into even your physical choices, which you can't do unless you're really rooted in them. Because you like to go to like coffee houses, like loud places, right? Loud, to learn. I love to go to noisy places and learn my lines because if I can do it in those places, when I get to the rehearsal room where it's quiet and focused, it's easy. So that's where I learn my lines in coffee shops and um, subways and walking down the streets and, and um, I mean there's, there's a lot of people in New York and London that think I'm actually mad because <laughs> they, just, they just see me in the corner in my you know, cortado going See a lot of New Yorkers. Yeah. You see that when you go to a coffee shop yeah, and yeah. watch someone. I recite lines on the street or yeah, yeah. every day, like, yeah. you know, dialogue or whatever. It's you know, wonderful or an to intro. just keep it running in your head, so you don't have to um, worry about it. Yeah, it's such a big role. Mm-hmm. How challenging is it for you? What are the challenges of this role of Othello? It's it's emotionally draining. Yeah. Um, even when I. Played Hamlet. You know, Hamlet has these wonderful um, soliloquies that he, when it starts getting really rough, he then looks at the audience and says, you know, you know, to be or not to be. That is the question. Help me with that. Whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or let me talk to you about this is what he's doing. Othello doesn't have soliloquies. You know, he doesn't. He, he, it's all in his head. It's all in his mind. He's trying to figure it out himself and then he thinks he's figured it out and it's like uh but it's never like can i talk to you about this can i um there's no oh that this too too solid flesh would melt or resolve itself is there's no i'm I'm suffering here yeah do you know what i mean there's none of that 
he just suffers. So I find it very um, difficult because there aren't no release valves. There's no escape valves. There's no coming down. It's like he's on that pitch and he's constantly balancing love, hate, murder, redemption, honor, you know, all those things constantly. It's not as big. They're not as, Iago has more lines. Hamlet has more lines. All this, you know, but it's the nature of it. It's the, it's the stakes of him that make him really difficult. That's why I'm not in a hurry to play him again. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, I love how you say there's no release to your character, which yeah. is quite interesting because he's always fighting these different sides yeah. through the entire show. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. Constantly, it's coming at him and he's fighting. I tried once in, yeah. in rehearsal to see if I could say some. There's a speech he has, why did I marry this honest creature doubtless knows, sees and knows more, much more than he unfolds or curse of marriage that we can call these delicate creatures ours. And not. I tried that once in to the audience and it just seemed so cheap. It just seemed so, this was in the rehearsal, it just seemed so easy. Yeah. It just seemed I'm, I'm, I'm letting myself off the hook. And it seemed like I was begging for sympathy. It's not, the, he doesn't have an awareness of your sympathy. He is, his judge and jury of his life, of that island literally and of his life. So there is no release valve, so he has to take it on. He has to take the burden. Um, and that's what makes it hard is not having because I'm one of those actors, I love doing soliloquies to people. I love seeing their faces and, and their reactions, you know. But I, I can't in this one. The only time I get to do that is the very beginning court scene. Her father loved me often. But that's only because the audience become the court as opposed to a soliloquy, which is like you're talking to them, you know. Yeah. That's the only time. The rest of the time it's just, it's just him dealing with it. That's what makes it really hard. And he loves her. But he, the fact of the matter is, like, I don't care whatever the motivations are, whether it's right or wrong to kill her. The fact is that he loves her, but he kills her. Yeah. And you've got to resolve that somehow with yourself. And it's never resolved, but I just have to do it. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's hard. How long was the rehearsal process? Four weeks. Four weeks. Yeah. yeah. When did you feel that you were on the right page? Like you said, I have him now. Was there, was there a point during rehearsal where you said, I, I have him now? Um... I knew, that, not that I have him, but I knew there was a point where I was like, okay, all, I have the ingredients now. And then let's just see how, how what the, the casserole is going to turn out to be. Because I know for a long time, the first couple of weeks, I was struggling a great deal with the first half, the general, the guy in command. Because you can't play that. You're either it. You have to find your version of that. You've got to tap into your version of that. Um, so that, it's funny, I, I was more at home going to the psychosis and the madness <laughs> and the whatever than I was with that, that uh, general, you know. And then I'd say into the third or fourth week, um, it's funny because I allowed, Ruben gave me a note and just said, you know, the beginning is the, your, really your only chance to be charming. I was like, ah, and that was the key. I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll just smile. And then suddenly the ease of the ruler came in and the ease of the man who commands thousands came in with that. And it was from that little note of, this is the only chance to be charming. I was like, okay, I know that. See, isn't it great when you work with a great director who they give you one mm-hmm. word yeah. that you like, oh, that yeah. unlocks everything, everything for you. Yeah. You know? And it made that make sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not only is Shakespeare one of the greatest writers, but do you also think of him as a great director? Yes, I do. I, yeah. I think. Tell us why, yeah. As my students here in the front row might know, I, I've always said that don't, um, 
you know, it's it's the, long before Freud and, and everything. Like this, this this guy was born and given to us as a gift, a bit like Mozart was and whatever. That for some reason they get it. They get life. They get humanity. And Mozart did it through his music, and you know Picasso through his art, and Mozart, and Shakespeare with his language. They just get human nature so amazingly. So what does he do? He's 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 gonna put a troupe together. There's they didn't have the time we had for rehearsal processes. The script he was writing the stuff on the day. They were getting that stuff and doing it and trying it out. So what does he do if he wants to make sure they get there? He, he, he puts the code in the language. He puts the directing code in the lines they have to say. Um, so this theory that Shakespeare doesn't give stage direction except for exit, exit pursued by a bear or something like that, or exit, and <laughs> it's all non- it's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's nonsense. He's giving you directions all the time in the sound of the words, the length of the words, how many syllables in a word, when he jumps from prose to verse, why does he do that then? Why does he have just a tiny bit of verse then jumps back to prose? What's going on with you as a person? How do you do those consonant sounds one after the other? What's that telling? Um, what, um, I heard thee say even now, thou likest not that when Cassio left my wife, what didst not like? Do you see what saying those sounds make you do? You're suddenly, what the hell are you talking about? You know? Those are the clues he gives you throughout. You know, um, I come into murder, because let's embrace what it is, um, the woman I love, and my speech starts with, it is the cause, it is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it. To you, you chased stars. It is the, it's the most monosyllabic speech in Shakespeare. And monosyllabic words, you can't rush them. If you rush them, you garble. So when you have to speak that deliberately, what is it doing to you as you build up the strength to kill your wife? He's giving you a direction of how to start that scene. So that's why I think he's, an ex- he's the, not just the greatest writer, but the greatest director. And in a lot of modern writing, we don't have that. I mean, that's just, I love modern writing. I mean, I grew up wanting to be a, a movie star. I still hope to be. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we're not given writing like that, yeah. that lives in the language, the acting for that sort of stuff is all between the lines, as you guys know. It's, it's what you do before you speak is what you do after you speak, yeah. if you speak at all, you know. It's different with him, yeah. That's beautiful. You know, a lot of people have always found, actors have found Shakespeare challenging. Just put your hand up. How many people find Shakespeare challenging as an actor? Okay, how many <laughs> of you don't find it challenging? So it's interesting. So I was just going, you know, so was there, you studied obviously with all these incredible people. Yeah. What is the best way into Shakespeare for people like the actors who are struggling with Shakespeare? Um, I would just say it's a mindset. I think it's, it's ingrained in us very early. It's often taught badly at school. It starts with school. And I mean, I, I'm not blaming the teachers. I, I, I blame the curriculum that says you, you're, you're supposedly doing, I know, Midsummer Night's Dream, but you only get to do four chapters in it and a teacher reads it out and you just sit there listening to someone read out Shakespeare, you know. 
the approach to it is all wrong initially. So there's initially a, a suspicion, deep suspicion. There's a sense of boredom because that's probably how the class was. So we get to it as adults and it's thrown at us and we're like, well, I don't, I don't like Shakespeare or I don't get Shakespeare. That's what I, I get. And I just go, why? It's English. Not only English, but the best English ever written. Um, you love the characters, so what is, why, why can't you connect with how they speak? Why is, it so, why, does it, why is it a problem when someone gives you the most beautiful imagery to describe? How often in life are we like, God, I wish I could explain this. This is a guy that explains it for you. So what a gift to be able to have someone put the... Uh, um, Florizel says to uh, Perdita, a young kid, trying to figure out how to say how much he... What you do still betters what is done. I wish I'd said that at 16 to someone. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I just think that um, you've got to get over the fact that it's alien to you. You've got to get over the fact that it's something you have to be overly reverential about. You've got to be really brave. You've got to, make the, you've got to embrace the sounds of it. If there's a k sound and you're you're angry at someone, it probably is because he's relating it to that very rude word that starts with k. Embrace that. Don't be too cerebral with it. We overthink it. Yeah, you need to do the homework and think it, but it comes down to the sounds and the rhythms and the music, which is another thing Ruben's amazing at being a musician himself, is the music of it. You can feel when you're going off. There are rules to be learned. Don't get me wrong. There's line ending rules. There's all those rules. You can do that in a class. You can do that in less than a semester you can learn the rule but then you have to go and do it with bravery and get over the fact that it's alien really take your time with it it's like learning music also if I want when I play the piano I don't go I'm going to just play this whole piece I want I'll give myself two bars for that day if it's really difficult you know if it's easier then I'll give myself longer than that but just give yourself the time to know you've got to know what you have to know is know exactly what you're saying it's not enough to have a general idea. Why does he use that word? The specificity of the imagery is key to Shakespeare. It's not a general wash. But overall, it's, it's fear. It's fear that has come out of years of being made to think that it belongs to the elite. It doesn't belong to the elite. The people that loved Shakespeare and went there were the people that were slaughtering chickens and bear fighting next door. That's, those are the people that went. And they weren't even watch. Often they'd be in the play. The play would be happening. They'd be doing something else, but they could hear it and understand it. So it doesn't belong to any elite class at all. You know. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. That's mm. great. Go right ahead. You have played the Delacorte before, of course, as Edgar opposite John Lithgow mm-hmm. in uh, King Lear. What are your fondest memories of that? And what makes working in the park so rewarding and magical? Ah, uh, fondest memories. You were so well, good in that. John, oh, what John, a gorgeous production. Oh, it was so beautiful. Um, <laughs> funnest memories. <laughs> I think there was that moment when I walked into the, the um, rehearsal room and there was John Lithgow, and there was Annette Benning. I was like, Annette Benning and John Lithgow. <laughs> and then there was a wonderful moment after, because I played Edgar, yeah. who gets really muddy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, it was cool. It was a cold production for me because I thought it's summer in the park. I get to wear no clothes. I'm going to be the happiest actor. <laughs> but uh, it was one of those summers where it rained every, almost every other show. And if it wasn't raining, there was this sort of like Excalibur like mist hanging every. I was like, what the is going on? I was so, and I had to have this mud stuck yeah. all over my mouth. And the thing with, with clay, yeah. which is the fake mud, is that it cools when it dries. So I'm already shaking, and this guy comes up and puts this. Uh, yes, yeah, so but there was a day where I came out of my shower and I was going to my dressing room, and you know, um, Warren Beatty was there to congratulate me. I mean, I just was like, "What's going on here?" And then another day, I came out, and this blonde woman rushed up to me before I, and gave me a hug, and it was Meryl Streep. You know what I mean? I just like, yeah. I mean, those, those are the sort of moments that happen in the park that are quite ridiculous, you know. But then, and then there's the magic of the park that is nature listening to theater, you know. And, the, and it did happen several times. I don't know if it happened the night you saw it, but there's the blue winds, you know, the, the, the storm sequence. And there was a night where a storm was coming in as he was doing that. And people were watching this real storm come and. Lithgow was out there saying, come, come get me and stuff. And there was a night, I was cold, I wouldn't deny being cold, but there was a light drizzle and I came out as poor Tom and I'm supposed to be, and I didn't have to act that part of it. And I felt the, it was a combination of them getting the story, the audience, but also feeling my discomfort with me. It was the most electric show also. So I think sometimes nature listens to you out there and it's just wonderful when it does it, as well as the raccoons. The raccoon family was out Saturday night, yeah. just right? As well as the raccoons. Tell them, it yeah. comes every night. You they come every speech, night. Right? There's, a, there's, yeah. a, there's a point, there's a family of raccoons up, <laughs> upstage left. Yeah. And it, there's, a, I guess, a newborn yeah. who's a bit smaller than everyone else. And every yeah. night around yeah. the willow scene, yeah. In the, yeah. you start hearing this... And it is, it is this baby raccoon, because the others have just like oh, yeah. taken off. They've gone yeah. to go foraging. And this one is trying to get out of the hole. Yeah. And no one's coming to get yeah. her or him. I don't know what the hell it is. It's like, and it's just screaming in such yeah. despair. And we can't yeah. do anything because you're not allowed to touch them or whatever. You shouldn't because they're ferocious. And, but this thing is there. And every night at the same time, it decides to start screaming. It's not cute anymore, actually. It was it was it was yeah. cute for about two minutes, yeah. yeah, and then because Saturday the whole family was there. The mother came out first. We watched yeah. the mother come out. Then they all came out afterwards. And on the yeah. second, yeah. like the second preview <laughs> or something, I was about to make an entrance with Cassio, and uh, just as we're about to enter, a raccoon just enters before us. When you, and it just walks across the stage. In a key light. In a key light. And I, 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 we watched it. 1,900 people are laughing. And then when it got to the end, I started applause. And it was, I mean, it was just the best stage cross I've ever seen. So that, so that Live was... Live theater in the park. You know, yeah. You never know. You know, you recently won an Obie Award for your acclaimed performance of John Blank in Bruce Norris's The Low Road. Did anybody see The Low Road at the public theater? This was stunning. This was so great. Um, what attracted you to that role and to the script? Um, the script, I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I was in London at the time yeah. and the script was sent to me. And at the time I was in the middle of filming and really enjoying 
not being nervous every time I gave my credit card to pay for something that it might be rejected, <laughs> which is what theater does to you. And um, so I was enjoying that. And it's just an easier schedule. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I was enjoying all that. I was like, I'm not sure I want to do a play right now. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm getting home. At, you know, I got home at about midnight. I said, you know, I'll open my computer. I'll, I'll give the first 20 pages a read and see what happens. And I, I started reading and two, three hours later, I was laughing and rereading parts and the whole play read it all in one sitting because it was literally one of the funniest plays I've ever read. And also so much at the heart of it about what's wrong with the equality is the thing about equality. Yeah. With I was like, how has this man managed to Bruce Norris to deal with all these issues? So I've written this initially seven, five years ago, and yet it's like you wrote it yesterday. A bit Shakespearean in that way. And still make me laugh, even though it's so bleak. And I, I, it was like blazing saddles, you know what I mean? It's like, it was that funny and that irreverent and that dangerous and that. And so the next morning I, I, I sent a message to my management. I said, yeah, I, I think we should make this work. And so I, I was in New York. I had a phone call with Bruce. We talked. Yeah. And to get his ideas, then I was in New York briefly. My fiance was opening a show upstate, so I was in. So I met Michael Greif very briefly for a conversation and a coffee. And I was like, "This, these guys." Michael knew he knew the show he was going to do. I said to him, "Michael, it's it's quite long. This is a three-hour show." He said, "Nah, he knew because in the end it was like two twenty-five or something. He just knew how to make a show move, as anyone who's seen is you know everything from Rent to Dev and Hansen yeah. can tell." He just made it move. And he, they had such confidence in what was a beast of a play because it's a massive play that I was like, well, I, I know I love the play. As for the character, I was like, I didn't even think of the character because it just made sense. I got him. I was like, oh, I, 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 it's so weird to have all this acclaim for a character that came so easily. Yeah. I got him. I, I was like, I, oh, he's funny. I kind of know where he's coming from and all that. Explain you know. who the character was. The character is John Blank. He's a, yeah. uh, he's a, uh, he was put into, he was captured and put into slavery as a kid and then got adopted by uh, an earl who yeah. made him his heir. But when the earl died, the earl's family got rid of him and set, sold him back into slavery. And uh, when you meet him, he's on an auction block, and then you find out that he plays, he pretends to be deaf. And, to be deaf. That's how he gets by in life. But then the very second scene, he reveals that he's not deaf. He's actually the best-spoken, most intelligent person in the play. And it's, the, it's then the sort of relationship he has with the guy who bought him, and it's a hilarious relationship. And uh, he reconnects with the woman, the girl, woman of his dreams now, who he lost when he was 14, and he's the he's the voice of it's sort of conscience of the piece. Yeah. He's the conscience of the piece in America today. The fact that it's been uh, from the beginning till now has always been based on the dollar. <laughs> you know, all the major choices and sure. all that has been about whether you break it down to a moral argument or or whether it's right to have slavery or not, or abolitionist movements or suffragettes movement, it's all about the dollar. And that's what this play does. It's all about, does it make someone enough money or does it lose too many people too much money? And that's what this piece deals with. So it was, it's, I, I really wish it could have gone on 
But, you know, it was such a powerful piece. It'll, it'll have another life somehow, yeah. uh, you know, so we'll see. I yeah. just love, you, you said you got him right away because it was the perfect melding of like material and actor. I mean, mm. it, was, it just seems seamless. It seems so. I mean, I was yeah. very, I was genuinely, uh, it, which is always the best sort of surprises when you're genuinely surprised when yeah. suddenly, I remember waking up and suddenly it's like, congratulations on your Lotel nomination. I was like, then congratulations on your drama yeah. league and then oh, on the Obi, you know, and, and I just, I was like, wow. Because you strive for certain yeah. roles. Certain roles you're like, I'm going to work by, and no one gives up. <laughs> yeah. And then the other ones that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is cool. I'm having a great time. I'm having a, with that cast, Harriet Harris, you yeah. know, and all that, Kevin. And, and then uh, the accolades you know, come. Yeah, and then, and then the accolades come. Yeah. So it makes you realize it's, it's just not ultimately that important because you don't, it's nothing to do yeah. with you in many ways, you know. Sure. You know, our audience is made up of actors. So I want to ask you about auditioning. Mm. Were you always good at auditioning? Are you good at auditioning? Because I know a lot of actors say, you know, I, I can act. I'm a really good actor. But what terrifies them sometimes is what's behind the door yeah. when you go there. So if ever I am um, lucky enough to have an award season like this and maybe win an Oscar or something, I won't, I, it's not about the Oscar, I don't care. All I care about is that I will never have to audition again. <laughs> that is all that represents to me. I yeah. hate auditioning. Really? I really don't enjoy it. Wow. I have learned how to um, seem like I enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. I don't. I, I think it's such an artificial... It's, I mean, what are you going to do? You're not going to bring in dozens of actors and workshop with them all the time, although some people do, which is wonderful. I, I don't like auditioning. I, 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 found, I find it easier to audition for plays because in preparing for an audition for a play, because of the nature of how plays are written, it's about the character work. You can, the audition for a play is sort of an extension of your work you did at home. So I, that I understand because I have a great... But auditioning for... Um, film and TV, whereas usually you don't have even that much material necessarily, and it's usually about a look or about a whatever technique. I, I, I loathe it. I don't. Some people say, oh, I, 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 I love audition, and I look at them like they're from the Klingons or something. I don't. But my advice to, if I were to give advice about it, is that to think of it as an extension of the work you've done at home. The moment you start thinking, what do they want and what can I give them in that room, you're in trouble. The moment you think, okay, I'm going to go in there and do my work, and I know that sounds so obvious, but really how, ask yourselves how many times you've gone into the audition room and done that as opposed to trying to give them something or trying to put out your best self and all that nonsense. How many times have you actually gone in there and just said, I've been rehearsing, working on this, I'm just going to come in here and do it and be ready to leave afterwards and not think about it. I mean, I think the minute you can do that more and more, that your chances are going to improve a great deal because often we start letting other things, oh, it's this director I'm meeting or this job would mean so much to me if I got it or have I, oh, the character says in it that he, he's wearing glasses in the breakdown, should I wear my glasses? All these things that don't matter, yeah. they can put glasses on you if they want you, you know, later. Go in there and, and be ready to put yourself in the position to do your best work, you know. And if you can, ask them if you can just self-tape. Because <laughs> that's the new now. That's the new. I love self-tape. Yeah. You just fiddle with it. You try it a bit. You do a few takes. You say, okay, send it. And then it's out of your mind. As opposed to that slightly depressed. 
feeling of going into a room and knowing you haven't given them anything. And that's, you see, look at the terminology I use, giving them. Who cares? It's not about giving them. It's about you um, doing, and there's a reason why you talk about, oh, it's always the one I didn't want. You know, the the one you didn't want is the one that you were relaxed and you were yourself and you said, I'm just going to give a take and get out of there. But you can't manufacture that. If you try to go, oh, I'm going to be really relaxed in the room and you go in there relaxing, <laughs> you lose your lines. You can't, you're yeah. either that or you're not. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and, then, and then there's the other thing I will say to actors, which I've learned over the years, is that if the role is supposed to be yours, you can go in and I've had some of the, my first audition with the public was one of the worst auditions that, and I got the gig and it's led to my career here, whatever. Um, Evil, who I've now worked with uh, twice, when I first auditioned for him, it was for The Crucible yeah. and I didn't get it. But then he called me in for Hedda Gabler and I got that like that. You know, um, if the job is yours, you're going to get it. If it is not yours, you can give, I've given some of the best, I know best auditions out. I know the directors. And that's sort of what happened with Crucible is that I know I gave a great direction, but it wasn't that, that was not my role. Interesting. The ne- when the right role came up, it was that simple, you know. So give yourselves a break and just understand that um, it is a numbers game. And it is a numbers game. You know, and if you have the right representation, the right people backing you, they know that also. All you have, the only responsibility is make sure you've gone in there and left your carbon footprint, that you've gone in there and left the right impression. That's all you can do because having been on the other side of the table, you know, you know, I've been cast early in certain things and they've said, can you come in and read with, and seen amazing people come in, do everything right, but they're not going to get it for this reason or that reason or too tall or looks too much like that person or oh I loved everything about them but the energy isn't right for you but their audition was brilliant and so that's the other thing I'm going to tell you is don't go home and start second guessing yourself if you feel you've done a good job you have just because you didn't get it don't equate that to you haven't got a good job it's like I don't know if you guys read reviews I don't it's like you know you're in a good play you've done a great job but because some one individual or two out of says whatever you start second guessing yourself and Oh, am I? It's the same thing with auditions. You know, if you feel you've done that and done it, but you didn't get the job, it's not because you were wrong and didn't do a good job. You could have done the best job and got it. And you could have done the worst job and yep. still got it. You know? That's terrific advice. Thank yeah. you for that. That's from him. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I want to go back to the beginning. Growing up, where did your love for performing begin? And what were the earliest creative outlets for you? Uh, I think, I guess, I. I I don't want to say I always performed as a kid because that's not, I wasn't in Annie or anything like that. But, <laughs> but I did school plays, yeah. you know, and I just saw it as part of the school curriculum. You do yeah. plays, they ask you to do, and you do them. Um, but I was a bit of a strange kid in the sense that, all, as far as I remember, though, all my childhood games were not friggin' imaginary rabbit or something. It was, uh, God, I love that word, frigging. <laughs> Um, it was, it was, favorite word, right? my, my, my games were reenacting what I'd seen yeah. on TV. So I remember, uh, trying to make my cup move with the force for ages. <laughs> Did you perfect that? You'd be surprised. I can do something. <laughs> I remember, uh, um, getting, 
we had a lovely old guy that was our, used to garden for us. I remember getting him to carve out my version of a, I don't know why I was watching Dirty Harry at that age, of a magnum <laughs> whatever. I'm practicing, you know, make my day, you know, punk. There were all reenactments of, of things I'd watched and seen on TV. I, I didn't, I did, that was where my imagination lay, was, was perfecting these scenes in my head. Yeah. So it was always there. But then I didn't really pursue it because I, as an adolescent, I went to boarding school in England and there was the cool group who did sport and the not cool group who did theater. So I did sport, but I would always go watch the theater. And then I would always get into trouble because I would, I would uh, break curfew and watch the Oscars, which in England would be at midnight, our time, you know, or watch TV shows and really watch them. So there was a side of me that subconsciously knew I wanted to perform, but it didn't become really conscious till I was actually in the States and I did a play and I felt that buzz of walking out on stage and going, this is what I want to do. And then it's funny because literally soon after that was when I was offered a scholarship to drama school. So the decision was taken out of my hands, but I, I put myself in the position to explore that without necessarily knowing that it's what I wanted to do. You know, you're an associate artist of the Royal Shakespeare Company, mm. and you received two Olivier Awards mm. for playing Henry VI in their productions of Part One, Two, and Three. Mm-hmm. How challenging and rewarding were those tasks, and what were the biggest life lessons you took away from the RSC? Uh, well, God, those are big questions. Uh, that, specifically about the histories. Yeah. Both of those Olivier's were ensemble-related, on, which yeah. comes back to my point about the team. You're as, you're, I don't care how good an actor you are. Yeah. You will be better if you're surrounded by better people. It's as simple as that. I don't care how good you are. Um, that experience we did, first of all, Sir Michael Boyd, who's a dear friend and a genius director, was running the RSC and he decided to do this, all the history plays. So basically, um, if you go chronologically from Richard II to Richard III, with the same company of actors over two years. That can't happen in this country. You know, you just don't know. It's like public funding. That's what makes that happen. And, but on top of that, he chose to cast unknowns in a place where he could have easily picked up the phone and called in a Ray Fiennes or where all these geniuses of acting. He chose to cast unknowns and create an ensemble. It was the most magical single experience of acting of my life. The hardest, because we would do three shows in a day. We would have weekends where we call the marathon weekends where you do all, by the time we had all the shows running, all eight shows from Thursday to Sunday. So you get to the theater on, on, on the, the marathon days were, were Saturday and Sunday. You get to the theater, I'd get to the theater to warm up and about 9 a.m. I'd leave the theater close to midnight all day. Part one, two, three, you know. But it was the most amazing. It, it made us believe, it may, I'll speak for myself. It just made me believe. I mean, I came to the RSC from um, the States saying to my friend, if it takes me three years to camp out of the door, I'm going to get in because all my heroes went through that door. As it happens, my agent, who's my agent to this day, Teresa Hickey, um, she, the first audition she got me was for the RSC and I got in playing tiny roles, the longest 15 months of my life, you know, tiny, but I got to watch these amazing actors. So for us to come back and be given Henry VI was amazing. And, and, um, 
it was a life-changing thing because it changed our lives as actors in England because you're now on that. I actually am on a stamp. So my grandkids will be able to, I can, when they're looking at me thinking I'm not all that, I'll be able to bring out my stamp and go, I'm on a 78 pence stamp. <laughs> um, so there. So there. What have you done? Um, so it was, it was life-changing and, and yeah. beautiful. The RSC, what it meant to me was, you know, my first voice lesson was with, with Cicely Berry and the great late John Barton. Yeah. These were the people that were schooling me through verse speaking and, and how I make choices and using my own voice. These are the people I'd go to rehearsal, finish rehearsal. Okay, you have your hour session with John Barton. Oh, you have Cicely Berry to do that, you know? I, it, was, it was really magical, and I'm really honored that they've, uh, you know, rewarded me with an associate artist thing. But it was life-changing. I, I feel, I, I mean, the actor I am is because of that. It doesn't matter whether I'm doing film, TV, or whatever it is, that going school outside of school that I had working with those guys, and the fact they nurtured me from Spear Carrier to Ophidius to Henry VI, that transition, it all, it all sort of happened. Yeah. That's how you work your way up, like spear carrier number three. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. But, and that's the best way you really should learn, well, right? You, know, like, you watch. And you you learn. watch. I was on the side. I chose to watch. Yeah. I'm not saying everyone that was in my position did watch, but I, I knew, I knew I had to watch these guys. Yeah. Even the stuff I didn't like, even the guys I didn't really, even though I was in my young, yeah. ego driven mind, I was thinking I could do that better. <laughs> but uh, I was still watching them and learning from them. If you can do it better, what is it about what they're doing you don't like? Yeah. That's a lesson then. Tell me what it is you don't like. Form that in your head and then form how would you do it if you're so good, you know? And you know, you learn all these lessons watching these guys. So that's what spear carriers do. That's what they, they should. They watch, right? They should. You have a lot of time to watch them. From. I'm going to watch spear carriers. <laughs> As you're watching all these stars saying, I could do that. Yeah, 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 I could do that better. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of your other work. And just tell me what comes to mind, a story or a memory. Mm. The film John Wick, Chapter 2. John Wick fans? Yeah. Opposite uh, Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves is so cool. He's yeah. made the pact with the devil. Someone, yeah. he just looks so young yeah. still. It's ridiculous. <laughs> really ridiculous. You're like... What the, the um, movie star pack? The movie star pack, yeah. <laughs> um, what memory that comes from? You that. wanted to do. I wanted to. Yeah. What happened was I, yeah. I I was at home on an evening off yeah. watching, uh, flicking through Netflix or something or, or whatever, and I saw John Wick, the first one, and I watched it going, you know, watching it, and then I was like, because I grew up on the Chow Yun Fat and John Woo movies, Hong Kong movies, and I don't know if you guys know. And I watched, I was like, this is amazing. And the next day I emailed my agent and my manager and said, if there's a sequel to this, please get me into this. Which you do as an actor. And they're, they're probably in the offices going, yeah, okay, I'll just wave the magic wand. You know, like. <laughs> and there. then I'm not lying, because I saw the film late, yeah. like three months later, yeah. I got an audition for it. <laughs> for the second one, you know, and I was like, oh my God. And then I, again, this is another thing. If it's yours, it's yours. I auditioned. Brilliant audition, first time, if I may say so myself. Sure. <laughs> Didn't hear a peep. Nothing. Gone. Months. Six months later, my, I auditioned through my manager here, Meg. Then six months later, my agent in London calls and says, okay, so they're doing John Wick too. And, I was, and they sent me, I was like, Teresa, I've, I've auditioned for this role. She goes, well, they want to see you, whatever. So I did a tape this time. The next day, Chad... Uh, Chad Stahelski, the director, was on Skype to me saying, I want you to do this. Wow. So 
I went through it and didn't get it. It was going elsewhere. But for some reason, he wasn't happy or something with who they had or they hadn't found. He saw my tape and he tells me the story that his wife, who does a lot of stunts and stuff with him, was watching the tapes and she was like, Chad, come look at this guy. And he looked at it and he said, get me on the phone. It was that quick. So I sent the tape like on a Wednesday, on Thursday morning, I was speaking with Chad and then I was flying off to Rome to film it. So that's, that was, and for me, I mean, land, and this is another thing is my flight was on the day. Do you remember that horrible snowstorm in January in 2016 that closed America? Yes. <laughs> but thank God I was living in New York because it's one of the few cities that can you could get out get of, out of yeah, because yeah, they know how to deal with snow. So it looked like I might not make it. And then everything was hinging on connecting flights and getting there on time. And it all worked out. But, you know, there's nothing like turning up and, you know, in Rome, filming in Rome. And the major, main scene for my character is that these uh, deserted baths that are thousands of years old. And there was a rock concert scene and they're playing and there's a red carpet. And I'm there in my suit, tailored suit. And I'm just going, this is ridiculous, you know. So <laughs> it was my first big budget sort of thing. So it was really good fun. I love how you put stuff out in the universe and it comes back to you. It's weird. If it's yours, it's, it's yours. Yeah. If it's not, you can, there's nothing you're going to do about it. You know? Well, let's talk about film and TV then. I love right. to ask stage actors, what's it like when you first get on those film sets? Did you grasp filmmaking right away or? Um, no, okay. no. I think, I think, Most I, I think it's a different, it's a very yeah. different skill set. It's the same world, but a different skill set. Um, somehow I fluked into a couple of things early because when I moved to New York, I realized after my first few auditions, I had no idea what I was doing. But somehow I managed to, again, it's down to a director <laughs> seeing you. I remember I did this film, Exam. Yeah. Brilliant film. And um, playing the lead in it. And I don't know what I was doing. But Stuart, who's become a dear friend, the director just liked, he said, he described it as saying, oh, it's like, for him, he thought a younger Sidney Poitier was in front of him when actually what was in front of him was an actor going, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. And he liked my suit. Okay, see? He liked the suit and shirt tie combination I wore because that's how they actually dressed my character. It's weird how these yeah. things work for because I didn't know what I was doing. Before that, my first TV, again, was a lead in a miniseries, Teddy O'Sullivan, directed in Dublin. And I remember, I don't know how I got that gig because it was such a hard role. And I, I'd come fresh from theater. I didn't know what I was. But again, he saw something, maybe the vulnerability of not knowing what I was doing, he liked about it. And then I come to the States and I try to book a guest star in some show I don't even watch. And I can't even do that, you know. And then... I, I got called in for this pilot, uh, Murder in Manhattan, and uh, it didn't go, but the character, the day I got called in, I'd got three or four texts from friends who are fellow actors going, dude, I've just been called into this thing, but I'm reading this character, man, it's you, it's you. I was like, what? I got called in and literally I sat there with the director and producers and I just knew it was mine because it fit, you know? But it's a different skill set. It's taken me a lot of time to trust my instincts with it, to trust that Ed Hall, the son of the great Sir Peter Hall, said to me, because he used to be an actor, he said, film acting is manipulation. You have to be very good at manipulating a camera and making it seem that you're just 
being natural. And I actually agree with that. I know a lot of film actors wouldn't agree with me at all. But there's, there's something, if I was doing a play with you and I had to say something really important to you about, you know, this guy, this, this guy, this guy's gonna, this guy's gonna kill you and pick up my water. You know, I'd probably do that in a play. This guy's gonna kill you, right? If I was doing a film, that's a lot of faffing around. What I'd probably do is, this guy's gonna kill you. Because the camera needs to, do you know what I mean? It needs to have time. It needs to come in. You need to seduce it. If I do this and that, it's too busy. It's too busy, you know? And, um, or knowing the words in a sentence where if I'm looking down here, they always love when you're elsewhere. And then just knowing when you look up at it. If I was doing a play, I'd look up whenever the, you know what I mean? Because it's all, it's all organic. But in a film, you cut it, you bring it, you narrow it down to these beats. Jimmy Stewart, I did this. Finally, after, I'll come back to this, but finally, after having all these disastrous <laughs> additions here and, and worrying that Meg, my wonderful manager, yeah. was gonna, the next phone call would be the one she fired me yeah. in. Um, she finally, my agent at the time and her, got me into a class with Bob Krakauer. And if you can take his class, take it. Yeah. And I remember Bob saying to me uh, early on, after eviscerating me my first take, because it was awful, because what he does, he films you and then you discuss it and you come back. And he, I remember in the elevator, the next, after he had destroyed me the first class, he, in the elevator coming up the next day, he said, if you can learn how to stop being a character and just be a person, you're going to book work the whole time. And I think that's a very big key part of acting and film and TV as opposed to theater. You need to transform in theater. You need to characterize. The minute the camera sees you being a character, it's over in film and TV. During the course of that, you know, three day, four day, I don't know, I can't remember, I booked three things back to back with Bob after just that lesson of, because he teaches how to beat, to beat, to beat. Take his class if you can. And um, then I, I, ages later, about a year later, I was watching, I love watching documentaries of actors on like talking pictures and stuff. You find them on YouTube free of charge. You know, it's great to watch. And I remember Jimmy Stewart talking about how he was filming something late in his career in Argentina. And this local came up to him and said, Mrs. Stewart, man, I, you know, I love, I love this film you did. I can't remember the name of the film. I can't remember what you said in the scene, but there was this image where you did, and he described picture to picture to picture in the scene. And that's what Bob was saying. You know, he's like, it's these beats, these pictures you make. Cameras aren't continuous they're not. They're very fast pictures. So it's about the reason why Dane, this guy isn't going to kill you, doesn't work. There's no picture. There's no moment. This is the picture. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Um, and um, learning that, but try, I've said, I know this in my head, but yeah. the number of times I still go into meetings and don't do that, you know, <laughs> because I'm thinking about, but if you can find a way of beat to beat and finding the pictures, that's what they look at and go, that's the guy, that's him. Yeah. I loved what you did there. And those beats don't have to be moved. They can be something you do. You know, I just did something as Ed recently. It was just a guest star in Quantico and stuff. And the director told me, my God, when you did that, you're, there's a bit where I mimic the guy talking to me and I do, I had this idea of, 
Ooh, I remember when Eddie Murphy would play the white guy in Saturday Night Live, and he had this really weird voice. He's like, well, how are you there? Going on and on. He could do these R things. And they're like, well, let me consider my options, was my line. And I really went over the top with it, because I went from this straight guy and just went, hmm, let me consider my options. Hmm. Totally over the top, but it was a beat and a moment. And he said that got you the job. Wow. So find the beats, find the, I would say that in, 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 in camera to film, when I remember to do it, because sometimes yeah. I don't, and take away the whole thing that you can go in there and be awful and you just look right and you are exactly the energy they want and you flubbed your lines and they still hire you. Take away that. What you can control is finding those beats to be, really read the beats to beats, you know. And I sent that Jimmy Stewart thing to Bob and he now uses it apparently in the beginning of all these classes, that tape of what he's about to teach them. Because that is that, you know. So be a person, not a character, and make the pictures and... Make the pictures. Find make the beats. That's, what, that's how yeah. I, would, I would put it. You know, yeah. I, you know, someone else might not, but if you can remember to do that and just yeah. know it's all about knowing when you look at the camera, when yeah. you don't, and then being very relaxed. Um, 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 Relaxation is absolutely key. The camera is like in real life. The camera is something to be seduced. And we're most seduced by people that seem at most at ease with themselves, you know. And the more you can get that is seductive. Then it, then it, it comes, it, they, wanna, they, wanna, they can't wait to get to your close-up. And if you have people that can't wait to get to your close-up, you've probably booked the job, you know. That's great. You know, I had David Tennant here. Mm -hmm. What was it like being a part of the world of Doctor Who? Uh, you did it with Matt Smith. I right? did it with Matt Smith, okay. not with David. But David and I, we, I think they did a couple of radio plays. Yeah. He's a sweet human He's being. Great. He's a great guy. Doctor Who for me, I, I'm, you know, oh, I might get into trouble here. Yeah, right. I was more of a Star Wars and yeah. whatever, you know, okay. I didn't really. <laughs> Doctor Who fans here? So okay. I got the job for the Doctor Who and I was like, oh, great, great. I, you know, for me, it was another yeah. job. And then people out of the world. I have open shows playing some of the greatest roles in yeah. Shakespeare and the people waiting outside have a Doctor Who post. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I feel a bit like the, the uh, Alan Rickman yeah. character in Galaxy Quest. Yeah. You know, I played Richard III, you know. <laughs> That's how I feel. I was like, okay, I'll sign you you have to embrace that. You have to. You Ian have McKellen to. and Patrick Stewart were here yeah. too, and oh, they well. were the same way. But yeah. they're like, you know, there's a whole other Picard, world. But yeah. they're like, and he, you have to be grateful yeah, for yeah. it because you know they're fans. They're people that yeah. enjoyed it, and you know. But I love that. But it the is. greatest roles in Shakespeare yeah, and then, the Doctor Who. They have the Doctor Who character. Like, oh, okay, I'll do that. But yeah. it must be like one of those checkoff points. Like I was in Doctor Who. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, yeah. my nephew's excited yeah. about it, and people are excited. Not just I like to. It's not just young people excited. Like you know. There are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of Doctor Who fans out there, you know. So. No, it's great. It's great. It's all it's all it's all building the album of your life, sure. isn't it? It's all those I snapshots, the album of your life that you can write really little notes about, you know, as you go along. I love yeah. that the snapshots of your life. Yeah. One of your latest TV projects is on right now. It's on Sundance TV, the BBC series The Split. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that and who you play? I play Xander Hale, um, who owns an, a law firm. It's a great series written by Abby Morgan. Yeah with the ridiculously talented Nicola Walker in the yeah. lead. Just one of the great actors, period, around. Yeah. And um, it's all about divorce law. Yeah. 
So it's fun stuff. Yeah. So in the world of divorce, it's in the, it's in the world yeah. of divorce law, but it, it, it looks at it through the prism of a family of sisters and their mother and yeah, their yeah. absent dad that comes back. And I own a law firm that Nicola works for. And he's a really quirky character. They, didn't, they sort of developed as the series went on. And I sort of, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be the youngest ever CEO or whatever yeah. of a law firm and a genius, but I'm really quirky. So it was great to play a left, a character that's sort of out of left field, as it were. Um, but it's a really, it's a real study about relationships in this wonderful world of legal world yeah. also. It's a nice mixture, which only very few writers can do so well. Abby Morgan is one of those that surprises you. You just find so much heart in very recognizable structure, but she just takes it much deeper. Yeah. And it's a really, it's been, it's been, a huge success in London, and I think they've commissioned. They've co- yeah. not. I think they've commissioned it for a second season, and it's on. I think it's about to end in Sundance. I think yeah. one or two more episodes. Yeah. yeah, it's a great series. You find it online or on TV. It's really, really great. Yeah. Um, talking. You talked about Quantico and Madam Secretary, mm-hmm. and, and do you learn lines fast, like for TV? I learn lines. I I can probably learn a Shakespearean monologue faster for some reason than. <laughs> Eight lines on it. I just, I can't. <laughs> In a TV show, right? I don't know why I find it harder to connect the dots. There's yeah. something. I think it's the musicality yeah. of, of, of verse that makes it easier. But I'm, I'm overall, I, yeah, I, along the prism of speed yeah. in learning lines, I'm, I, I'm lucky to feel like I'm quite high up there, thank God, yeah. you know, because that's where my work is, you know, is in getting those lines down, you know. Yeah. I've actually said no turning up to auditions if I think there's no way I can get any of this into my body. I'll just say I'd rather not do the audition, you yeah. know. Because we have a few questions from the audience. Mm. One was, when you arrive on a, on a TV show, like mm. as a guest star, mm. you meet these people who have been in this show forever. Yeah. It's like, hello, how are you? Take your scene. Yeah. It's... Do you enjoy that? No. It's like first day of school. <laughs> it really is like first day of school. Yeah. But what's great is that the most interesting writing yeah. in that episode is for the guest star. So you get to See? come in, do your thing, win an Emmy, and then get out, you know? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Another question is, how do you compare working in British theater to American theater? British theater, you, you, usually longer rehearsal processes yeah. and um, American theater is probably a bit more uh, experimental overall, yeah. you know? Um, British theater, you have this, you know, I, I've been spoiled. The places I've worked, I, I can't speak for the fringe scene, which is what you would call off and off off yeah. Broadway here. I've been spoiled in the national and stuff where you have five or six weeks rehearsal, your government subsidized, you know, you're working with a conveyor belt of all the people, some of the people that you wanted to become an actor yeah. for. So I have a very skewed vision of it. But I, overall, I'd say there's a bit more time, um, um, a bit less, less stuff unpaid. There's more paid stuff there. It might not be great, but it, 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 people tend to, yeah. you know, I think that comes with government subsidies and things like that that don't exist. I, I, it boggles my mind, and I have such huge admiration for actors in New York. I mean, making their own work, losing money doing it, two jobs while they're doing it, yeah. two, three jobs while they're in plays that are reviewed by the New York Times, yeah. you know? And I just go, I, I'm so glad. I, I don't know if I would have stuck with it. I just have, I can only say to you guys that are New York actors that do that and have the second job. And I have the deepest, and, and I'm not just saying, the deepest admiration and awe for that. And I just wish it were an industry that was fully a meritocracy. You know, it isn't, sadly. So you just got to, 
I've said it to my, I don't know if I said it to my class, but, um, but I, I taught for one semester, yeah. this semester and that like, first time I've ever done it and it was great. But I, I, I said, if, 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 if you can look in the mirror every morning and ask yourself and find a way to be honest with yourself and still say, do I want to do it and say yes, then do it because it can just happen. It lit- you wake all the jobs. I mean, when I think of every job I've got, I've woken up that morning not knowing I'm going to have that job. You've woken up that morning unemployed. <laughs> and then a phone call happens it changes that everything. takes you to Rome to work with Keanu Reeves. Yeah. A phone call. That's how it can happen. You know, so I would say... Uh, if, you, if, you, if you're being honest with yourself and the answer is still yes, then please keep the faith. And it's hard. And the reward, the, 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 the gratification, you should be looking in the mirror also and just saying, well done, you did it again for another day because it is not easy. That's great. This is part of the question you just answered. Mm. First of all, someone said this is the best production of Othello they've ever seen. So that's number one. Thank Go you. right ahead. Yeah. And the bit of advice you just gave. What character roles would you still love to play? Is there a dream role in for Shakespeare you? or anything? Well, in Shakespeare, I, I Macbeth. Do you know it's weird? Yeah, Macbeth and Macbeth and Coriolanus. And it's weird. Once I'm done with those, so I don't think I need. At least in now, I don't feel I need. I'd like to have one more shot at Hamlet, maybe. But it's the only role on earth I've ever wanted. But, Mac, that, but yeah. really, Macbeth and Coriolanus in Shakespeare. I'd love to have a go at uh, Stanley Kowalski. I'd love, and I don't, I don't need it to be uh, yeah. all set in Harlem and all. Yeah. I don't care. It just cast me if you want to do it. I'd like to have a go at that. Um, as far as the, the classics that exist, um, those are, I, I, right now, if you were to, you've thrown me sort of in front of a bus, I've had to think really fast, but those are the sort of, those are the three roles that I, as far as the classical or the known sure. world exists that I'd like to have a go at right now. That's a great yeah. mix of roles. It's too. a mix of roles, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be more different. Another question. Do you have a favorite calming or centering focusing technique that you use? I believe in, in um, I meditate pretty much every day and find your form of meditation. But yeah. I, deep breathing is enough for me. I just, there's always got to be a time when I just have to shut out. You know, one of the best things of the apartment we just moved into is the spare room and being able to shut out the world yeah. and just be there for a few minutes, whether it's five minutes or, or, or 50 just take some time for yourselves. And that's part of that thing of, of congratulating yourselves. You're still breathing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Beautiful. This is uh, from somebody, a very young person who hasn't found their network or their people yet in this business. Mm. What advice would you give? How, how, how does one go about finding the right kind of people to work with in this business? I think make sure you're in a city you want to be in. Yeah. Happiness, God, it sounds so, but genuinely, if, if you're in an environment you want to be in, you're, you're, you're not just thinking of it as a means to an end. You're in a place where you, you love to be there. And if you love to be there, you make the right connections with the right people. And connections in this business doesn't mean they have to be in the industry. Someone who's a banker that says, oh my God, you're really good. I want to, I ne- the next thing you do, can you invite me? That means as much as an actor saying it to you. So find the people that, just like the city, you have to narrow it down. The city you want to be in, the neighborhood you want to be in, the people you want to be around. And the happy self, then you don't, then you don't put all your eggs in one basket. But crucially, which is, brings us nicely back to meditation, the you that's happy, 
the you that was born before you decided to become an actor and all these dreams is totally independent from your acting or your work or these people. You gotta cultivate that because if, it, if that's dependent on you working, you're screwed. Because even if you're working now, there'll be a point where you're not working, whether because you're the hot thing or you're too old in this industry that is scared of, you know. Cultivate that thing that makes you happy. For me, I am a perfect day is when I can read a book and have coffee. I swear to God, as long as I can do that, I'm, you know. So cultivate that. Everything else is just is white noise, including, I hate to say, even this industry. It's just what you do. It isn't who you are. It's just what you do. It's what you've chosen to do. But if, if this thing in the middle of that isn't strong, all that happens is that this is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller until that doesn't exist anymore. And that's what happens with the madness of this industry is when you've lost that. You know? So cultivate that. That's what I'd say. Advice. Great advice, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, just leading into, you know, making your own work happen too. You have a production company, mm. I know. Is it with your sister? My sister and my brother. Yeah. Yeah. We've founded, it's called Tudor House. We've got a, uh, a, one of my sister who's just been made the first black British ambassador to Mozambique. Yeah. She also happens to have a couple of screenplays in, in production. <laughs> um, but one of her scripts, we were, we're in partnership with uh, Lionsgate doing one of her scripts. Uh, something I've written, I wrote a, a, a screenplay about Ira Aldridge. Yes. You know, Research, so, wonderful actor. You know, yeah. and um, the script I wrote is, you know, is now being read by some people, being pushed by some people. So it's wonderful because we're in a time when you have to make your own work also. And if I had thought, oh, if I write this, who will do it? I would never have written it. Just write it down first. Deal with that next. Write it down, sure. you know. A dear friend, Joe, a friend of mine here who works at the public, you know, had a dream to do a documentary and he just, you had to do it first. Who picks it up? Who distributes it? That's, let worry about that later, but you had to make the documentary first. Make it first and then worry about the rest later. Beautiful. My final question is, what is the best bit of advice that you've been given, either personally or professionally, that you live by? Wow. Um, my, this is about, I don't know if this, I mean, I'll probably go home and think, damn, I should have said this instead. <laughs> but in that spirit of making sure you're, you surround yourself with the right people, my agent has been my agent to this day. I remember there was a period I was going through this really horrible period. And Teresa, I wanted to take a job that has been offered to me. And she knew it wasn't the right job. And she knew there wasn't another job there, but she knew that wasn't the right job. And she said, I'm going to believe in you, even if you can't right now. So be around people that say that to you, because it's faith. And faith doesn't have proof. That's why it's called faith. And that's why it's a vocation, not a job. So that was one of the greatest things is to understand that wherever you're at mentally, if you look around and there's still people that believe in you, then you're good. 
I had been doing this. Clap, please. That was the best. Mm -hmm. I had been doing this for 26 years. And I have to tell you, this afternoon was perfect. Oh, wow. Your insight to all these actors that are here and watching around the world. It was a master class. I thank Thank you. you. You're in the middle of doing Othello in the park. You (laughs) opened last night. You have a day off today. You spent it here with us. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has been wonderful. You you haven't seen him in Othello? Go see him in Othello. Thank Thank you very much. much. Thank you so much. The very best. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.